James, and this is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Francois Beldesari. This episode was recorded on the 7th of January, 2021. For more episodes and show notes, please visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Enjoy. Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. All right. So how's it going? You know, life's good. Um, 2021, you know, it certainly seems to have a few tricks up its sleeve. But uh, but but here in California, we're, California, we're doing great. We are getting some rain. I'm, you know, writing some good code. And uh, and I really look forward to an exciting year. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, before we get too far, do you want to give yourself a quick introduction? Yeah, yeah. Um, so my name is François Baldassari. Um, I'm currently the founder and CEO at uh, Memfault. Most of you will not have heard of Memfault, so I'll tell you briefly what we do. We build developer tools for hardware teams, mostly focused on helping people know when their devices have problems in the field and why. If you want to learn more, feel free to, to you know, ping me about it. Um, I think more importantly, I've been an embedded software engineer for, for my entire career. So starting with uh, firmware for big servers at Sun Microsystems, and, and more recently working in consumer electronics at companies like Pebble. Um, that was the first smartwatch. So sadly, some people don't know Pebble because we haven't been in the market for a little while. And, uh, and Oculus, which more people know, doing virtual reality headsets. So I've uh, been doing firmware for a while and I love it. Yeah, definitely. I it was interesting because I I followed Pebble for a long time and had one of the original Pebbles. I think I was in the original Kickstarter, but uh, yeah, used it for a long time, and then we ended up getting introduced to each other through a guy named Heiko, who read one of my That's blog right. posts about embedded software quality, and we ended up. Uh, uh, I was really lucky to be able to meet with you and some of the ex Pebble people and some of the people in your circles of embedded developers, and we sat down and wrote some some things that we thought were sadly very, very missing from the world of embedded software engineering, kind of the, what we saw as not even state of the art of, of table stakes for a lot of software development that we, we tend to see not a lot of companies having. And that's why I was really, I think after that, I ended up seeing, I think that was just before you started Memfault. So it's been really great that's to see right. what Memfault has been doing and things like the Interrupt blog that have been kind of sharing a lot of those pieces of information. But yeah, it's it's really interesting to see what you've been doing over the last two years since we, we got a chance to meet in person. Yeah, and it's it's funny to, to think that, you know, two years ago we hopped on planes and, and, and mm. spent a day cooped up in a house dreaming about embedded systems. That seems like a, a far away notion. But you know, you 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 know, I think that meeting you was also eye-opening for us. For a while at Pebble, we felt a little uh, a little lonely, to be honest, because we'd been thinking at embedded developments as really a software engineering discipline. And I think this is because we had we had a unique point of view. We were working for a on, on a device that yes ran on a STM32 microcontroller. But fundamentally, the work that we did was higher level software. There was a graphical user interface that was quite complicated. We had a layering system. We had different ways to handle, you know, you could, you could show bitmaps, you could show fonts, you could show all kinds of complex kind of graphics. Um, it had really kind of, uh, uh, you know, complex SDK that allowed people to write third party software, right? Like the idea of, 
hot loadable third-party software running in an STM32. It was a little, you know, it, we were pushing it a little bit. Uh, and in fact, many of the primitives that you need to build a good sandbox were hard to find on a microcontroller. But we, but we made it work. Um, and so because we were doing all this very software-y stuff, we had the needs of a software team. We were, you know, we, we were doing continuous integration. We were shipping updates every couple of weeks because they were, you know, we had new features, new APIs to ship for our SDK, bugs to fix. Um, and we were really following a cadence and a software engineering a development practice that was closer to that of a mobile engineer than to that of a, you know, hardcore firmware engineer that's, you know, bringing up a board and, and you know, implementing a driver for a sensor. And so I think that's why we, we've been thinking about how do we, you know, adopt more of these best practices and, and, and you know, how do we avoid reinventing the wheel uh, and adopt what the mobile guys and the web people have figured out. Uh, without, you know, and to, to make ourselves more productive. And so when I met you and we got together with Heiko, Brad, and Thomas, mm. um, it really did feel like all of a sudden there were other people thinking about this and, and, and perhaps there might be other people would be interested to hear about this. And so that was really exciting to me. And I think we laid the ground for some, some you know, interesting stuff, talking about build systems, talking about, you know, continuous integration, unit testing, uh, uh, hard, you know, hardware in the loop tests versus emulated tests versus pure software tests. We talked about, you know, architecting before you start coding. We talked about kind of, <laughs> you know, what, 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 you know, rigorous software engineering in this embedded context might look like. And I still refer to those notes regularly. It's been, it's been a huge source of, of inspiration. And it's interesting because I came at that from a very different side of things. So uh, my experience up to that point had largely been in safety critical with a little bit of IoT work, I think, by the time that we were talking. And a lot of the practices that we talked about were kind of the expectation of what you do when you ship uh, a quality piece of avionics, because for safety critical applications, you need to have that level of robust testing and things like that. And I think that was one of those really interesting things where we came to the same set of needs as software developers, where from an avionics perspective, you're doing it to ensure quality and robustness and things like that. But from a consumer device perspective, you're doing it for security and reliability and speed of iteration and things like that. But it was interesting because we had shared the same experiences with, uh -huh. you know, how much can a simulator accelerate your development? The ability to not be tied to a specific piece of hardware while you're rapidly iterating on software or how powerful is it to have, you know, remote control commands so that you can trigger unusual behaviors on your device or, or make sure that your device is going to respond to certain stimulus in ways that are predictable without having to generate that ridiculous stimulus that might be really hard to do with physical units and things like that. So it was really refreshing to see that. And I had been coming from an area of working with, especially after I left one company, I was working with different engineers who had different levels of experience and embedded and it was sort of like going back to the stone age uh, and I, I think we talked about this while we were meeting it was you, you get that experience when you're on an embedded development team or I suppose just a software development team in general that that has these mature practices and things like that and then you can go to some other team who's still shipping really excellent things and like a company who is still delivering on these things and sometimes 
you feel like you're walking back into the stone age because they don't have CI, they don't have testing, they don't have simulators, they don't have these kind of things. And even though they're shipping these really amazing practices, you walk in and you're going, why are you using rocks to build this stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah, I how often I find people who make it so much harder on themselves still still blows my mind. Uh, you know, I think the story I often tell, and I, I won't name names because because I'll, I'll you know I don't want to I, I want to skip in the good in the good graces of previous employers. But you know, when I one of the companies I joined kind of after I had been let's say enlightened at Pebble great company they they you know they were building good products but when i joined the firmware team you know i was taken aback i and and it may seem silly to to harp on this so much but but what struck me the most is that they didn't do code reviews and to me code reviews aren't some sort of complex process that you know software teams use and firmware teams don't use to me code reviews are a fundamental tool of programming that you use to one Get a second pair of eyes on your code because sometimes you know you go cross-eyed looking at the same function for for a couple hours. Number two is is share knowledge, really, right? Like help your other engineers understand the parts of the code that you've been working on better, and also you know benefit from their understanding of the rest of the code and how it might impact yours. And then number three, I think uh, it, it you know this is a little bit of a, a, a tangential benefit, but it also lets you take a step back from what you've just written, go sleep on it, come back the next day, take another look at your review and make sure that it still makes sense. So, so I think that every team should use code reviews. And so when I came, got there and they, they didn't do code reviews, they, they didn't, uh, uh, when they shipped a production build, they just build it on one of their laptops that record <laughs> in a spreadsheet which laptop they'd used and which compiler version they'd used. And then they email it. they were the writing it down. Go ahead. I said, at least they at were writing they it were down. Writing That's it a down. step better than some other companies that yeah, I've seen. Yeah, but they didn't really have a way to, re to ever reproduce that build, right? Uh, if they lost the ELF file, they'd never be able to, to do anything about it. And, um, and they had a Dropbox folder where they tried to save as much of, of this stuff. So you're right. It wasn't completely terrible, but, but they were using version control, right? Like there were some, some bright, bright points. But, but overall, I felt like that team was falling well short of what I think are kind of table stakes today in, in, in the, you know, in 2020, especially. And so I worked with them for the next couple of years to kind of change minds. And I have to tell you, um, some of them embraced it. And, and I think the team ended up much stronger for it in the end. Uh, and in fact, we ended up going very far. We ended up building super awesome automated testing rigs and, and, and a lot of other things. But in the process, a couple of people left. A couple of people got upset enough uh, by the fact that now you know their colleagues might scrutinize their code, for example, and 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 they they just quit. <laughs> they they change teams actually. Um, so there's a lesson in there, which is that if you're trying to push those changes within the, your organization, there's a real complex people management challenge that comes alongside that. And, and how you approach that people management problem is going to decide whether you succeed or not, but also how many of your colleagues you might alienate in the process. And I don't have a good playbook for you there, right? I think I did an okay job. We lost, you know, two people on the team out of 10, but, uh, but certainly it wasn't flawless. Yeah, that's definitely one of those things that both at companies that I've worked at where, where I 
been impacting those kind of changes. And also as a consultant teams that I've been brought in to assist with, I'll, I'll tell you, that's a recurring theme. Like the, the, the process and getting buy-in for improvement of practices is always a challenge. And it's very rarely a technical challenge. It's always a, a people challenge, which is unfortunately a much harder, less predictable kind of thing to plan with. And I usually get pushback from one of two directions. One, you either get engineers, like you said, who are very stuck in their ways of this is how we do it. And I like doing it this way. And I don't see any need, even though we keep having these problems or schedule slips and things like that, where they just say, why would I need to do it any other way? And, and that's one challenge. And usually the other challenge that I see is management pushback. We're usually for time and schedule and budget kind of reasons. You see people who are very resistant to change, even though, I mean, I'm very strongly of the opinion of it's, it's drastically preferable to spend a little time to do education up front and introduce processes that help you because it it is a little bit of an upfront cost. But I've seen teams very typically begin iterating much faster because they, they don't get tripped over their own feet. And from a management perspective, they tend to have a much more reliable schedule because instead of thinking that they're 100% done and they get to validation testing and realize they need to fundamentally re-architect things because the abstractions that they chose were wrong, they've had this kind of iterative approach where it may feel like it's moving a little bit slower, but when you're 90% done, you're 90% done, not 40% done and you just don't know it. I, I agree with you that this is one of those hard things to give reasonable feedback on because it, it usually comes down to like a, a social problem of what managers you're working with, what kind of environment in the company do you have? What kind of buy-in do you have from the other engineers and the managers? And, and mostly what I find is there's usually a handful of engineers who are very on board. Like they're just waiting for someone to teach them how to do it a better way. You get a couple of people who are really entrenched and just enjoy not having to do process or things like that, or just winging it. And sometimes you have very supportive managers who are like, I need better predictability. I need better things. And some who are just like, I don't understand. It's just software stuff. It's so easy. Why aren't you just doing it right? And, and that's always a challenge of navigating that. And usually when I get brought in as a consultant, it's very, well, there's a couple technical things that I fix, but usually those are direct and predictable. It's, it's usually like the social and political things that I run into, which are, I guess, where I really earn my money as a consultant, I suppose. But yeah, it, it can really be a challenge. And it's really frustrating usually when you walk into these teams and they know what they're supposed to be doing. Like, And it feels really frustrating sometimes as a consultant to tell this team what they already know. But sometimes as, as an external advisor, you have to go, no, really what your team has been telling you for two years is what you really should be doing. And if you don't do it, you won't have success. Yeah, and you 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 bring up some good points, but especially your you segue perfectly into the next point I wanted to make, which is you know so how do you actually that 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 management challenge? How do you overcome it? And I think there there's a couple of things that work, and the first one you already mentioned, which is bringing a consultant. And I know you know that sounds like a little bit of a cop out, but but actually having an outside authority that might not have the same kind of emotional tensions and history with other people that can can come in and present some hard facts really can unlock the debate. So I've seen in the past, you know, great consultants like yourself or you know Philip at Embedded Artistry who can come in have very clear understanding of what best practices look like, but also can can crisply explain the ROI can say, look, you're going to spend three weeks kind of retooling right now, but you're going to, you know, 
decrease your development cycle by 25% on average or something like that. Because you've done it with a couple teams, you know how it works. You might even have cool testimonials with people's photo and a fancy logo next to it. And that really helps with management. The, the other two things that I've seen work are number one, um, finding, going to find some VP or some director in the software engineering org who believes in this stuff. Because oftentimes, you know, you might be in the hardware org as a firmware person, but, but there's typically nowadays at most hardware companies a software org where, you know, continuous integration, for example, is a given, right? Like they would not work without it. And so there's a director or a VP who ardently believes in this stuff and who will kind of come and talk about it with, with the organization. And, and so that can be you know, and, uh, another path and, and sometimes a little bit easier. You don't have to argue for budget for a consultant. And then the third thing is I often tell people that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. <laughs> and so what I've done in, at several places I've worked at is I saw some low-hanging fruits that didn't require major changes in workflow, like create, writing a couple of tests that are just one line, one command line thing to run. And, and so you can't argue that that adds overhead or time or cost, but, but just get people in the habit of using these things and putting them in front of the fait accompli, right? So now they, you know, it's not just, can I build this test? It's like, here, I built this test. And, and you, can, you can drive change that way. So those are three things I think off the top of my head that, that I've seen work. Yeah, it's definitely, it's so interesting to see. Well, one thing that I want to go back to is embedded developers tend to sit in this weird place where they tend to sit in between the much more traditional engineering roles like electrical or mechanical engineering, manufacturing, um, those kind of things, and software organizations. And especially, it, it always sort of blows my mind that there's good engineering practices on both of those sides. So, I mean, if you talk to electrical engineers and manufacturing engineers, they have design reviews, they have requirements and planning and things like that. And if you look at the software side of things, they have things like continuous integration and they have things like testing and they have things like static analysis or, or verification efforts and continuous deployment and things like that. And embedded tends to fall in this weird cracks of the cushions where they tend to feel like it's too complex to be doing the same thing as the engineering, the electrical or mechanical engineering folks. They say, oh, that software stuff is way more complex than the CAD and the design and things like that I'm doing. But you also get this other side where you say, well, we're just building this small firmware thing. It's not a huge application or a huge web server. There's no things like that. And they tend to opt out of best practices of both sides, which is, is a, great point. a stunningly bizarre thing because they have good role models on both sides, but they feel like they're different enough from either of the role models and they don't pick up either. And I think, unfortunately, embedded engineers really do need to pick up the best practices of both sides because I, I think similar to electrical engineering and things like that, you you need the ability to get it right because when you ship it, it has to go out and it has, you know, it's very difficult to patch things that have been sent to the factory for programming, but you still are running software and there's a need for continuous betterment and things like that. So unfortunately, I feel like embedded engineers need to sort of have a blend of or sometimes the best of both of those fields because otherwise you're you're really going to run into challenges and things like that but also somehow have convinced themselves of the polar opposite that they're sitting in between which means they need to do neither of these things which is usually where i see these organizations challenge themselves because they you know they don't follow either of the best practices which is really a, a challenging and frustrating thing to see 
Yeah, you know that your your story about being caught between the electrical, mechanical, and the software, and and, and rejecting both to some extent. I think it's a great anecdote, and I hadn't thought about it that way. You know, it's it's striking when I think about the fact that many of us are actually electrical engineers by training. I I am one. I have an electrical engineering degree, and so you would think that we would at least you know adopt those best practices but you're right that by and large the the extensive design reviews that i've done with electrical engineering teams uh, aren't at all adopted in any of the firmware teams i've ever worked on so so i think that's a that's a phenomenal point maybe if i can ask you one question um you know you've now been doing this consulting thing for a while uh, and so you've i think you've seen a lot of different teams and you've pushed change uh, in a lot of different scenarios and organizations so in your experience i'm curious to hear have you found like one or two things that end up being the most impactful changes the lowest hanging fruits that that you know you kind of push on every organization and have those changed over the past few years yeah there's definitely a couple that i go to so i definitely believe software development of all kinds is an engineering field. So I was kind of saying electrical engineers versus software development, but I see software development strongly as an engineering discipline as well. For that, I feel like if I could do one thing for any team, like most bang for the buck, the first thing that I do is requirements capture. What I find helps most teams, particularly ones that are struggling, a lot of the times the reason that they're struggling is because there's no common understanding of what they're trying to build and how they're trying to build that. And sometimes that's between the electrical, the firmware and the application development team. Sometimes that's just between the firmware members of the firmware team themselves. So honestly, the almost the first thing that I do with every single team is look to see how they're tracking requirements, look to see what their architecture diagrams look like if they have them. I, I There's one book that I almost always use and it's Koopman's Better Embedded Software book. And he has this wonderful phrase called just enough paper where he comes from the safety critical industry. So he's used to these industries that have a lot of requirements of what you're supposed to document. But he makes this really good point of any process that you introduce should serve you. It should be something that you're doing because it brings you more value than you put in. And I feel really strongly about that. And with a lot of these teams, I'm not setting up really complex, you know, IBM doors or requirements tracking software or anything like that. A lot of the times it's like, okay, we have a Git repo. Let's put a folder in that Git repo called <laughs> docs and let's write some markdown files where we just write down what the software is supposed to do. And this almost always is the first thing that I do because if there's confusion between the electrical and the firmware team or the firmware and the application team, when I'm going to go bridge that gap in between them as the consultant, what I need to do is have it written down because then I can take that written document, even if I just print out the markdown documents, if I'm gonna go and do a design review with the electrical engineers, the application development team, I print out those pieces of paper and I say, we're having a meeting now. This is what the firmware th team thinks that they're doing. Is this what you think that the firmware team should be doing or the application team? This is how you're going to be talking to the firmware. Is this how you think that you're going to be talking to the firmware? And at some of the companies that I've worked at, I felt like I unwound six or 12 months of frustration with them because all I did was I sat down with the firmware team because firmware has, or software in general, tends to be the most complex piece of anything that you're building. Just the, the realities of how software development work. Software tends to be orders of magnitude more complex than the electrical or mechanical systems that you're building on top of. 
So there's there's an even stronger need to understand what's going on and what it's supposed to do. Um, so usually what I do is I sit down with the software teams, tell me what this is supposed to do. Tell me how this is supposed to do it. How What kind of decisions have you made of, does this have to be done every 100 milliseconds? Does this have to be done every 10 milliseconds? And I hammer it out with them until they have a sort of coherent thought of what it is. And then I usually immediately bring that to other teams or management and things like that and go, tell me if this is right or wrong. Basically, this is a design review. So what I do is I, I do a cross-team design review and then usually we we hash it out and we go, no, 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 this should be 50 milliseconds, not 100 milliseconds because this mechanical system requires this kind of latency or no, 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 all of these ADCs need to sample within one microsecond of each other because otherwise the data that they're capturing may be aliasing or things like that. And that's where I tend to find the most value of, of being able to just clarify that fog of war because you tend to have these teams that work I, everyone says oh we don't want to be in a silo but everyone likes talking with the people that they work with day to day and if there's overhead or management push to work with other teams and maybe you don't like people on the other teams or it's frustrating because they speak sort of a different language i found that putting things on paper is the great equalizer because you can always point to that piece of paper and that piece of paper can change at any time there's nothing sacred about requirements but whatever is in the requirements goes and i i do a really strong job of teaching that to the electrical and the mechanical and the management teams that says, if it's not in this requirement document, the firmware team is not going to do it. And I tell that to the firmware teams as well. If someone requests you to build something, even if they say, oh, I need this quick for a feature, you say, cool, describe to me what it's supposed to do. And I will put that in the requirements document today. And then we will build it 10 minutes from now but I will not build it until you put it in the requirements document. And this usually tends to be the most transformative change that I found in the teams, whether we're talking about consumer electronics, safety critical electronics, any of these teams, just because like, if it's not written, I guess that's, I don't know, Adam Savage says this a bunch. He's like the difference between just messing around and science is writing it down. And I, I find the exact same thing with engineering is, is if you're not writing it down and you don't have this sort of common understanding of what you're supposed to be building, one, you're never going to be able to test it because what are you testing against? Like without having it written down somewhere, how do you know what the good case and the bad case is? And, you know, all of these things, how, how are you expecting a team that is made up of many people, many teams, many design backgrounds, many time zones in a lot of cases, especially now when most teams are remote, like your, your chances of success drastically multiply if you have a handful of requirements and constraints written down in even the most informal of markdown documents, as long as you keep them updated and everyone knows where to look and how to read these documents. So honestly, I have a couple other things that I do, but the, the number one thing is requirements captured to like not even a super extent, just like fundamentals of communication between teams. And I think this is one of those things that mechanical and electrical teams are used to doing with each other because they have, if nothing else, they provide a, a CAD diagram or they provide a, a circuit diagram or, or what constraints of the size of the cables that you need. I think they're used to doing this, but when you talk about the interactions between those systems, that's maybe like 20, 30 requirements for the entire system. And they're used to kind of doing this a little bit more informally, but when you start getting into software, it might be a hundred requirements and they're not super used to doing that. But on the software level, you, you sort of need to specify it at that level. I love that. Um, and, and I think in software, we tend to glorify the act of writing code. But, but to me, the act of writing code is just the, the very final piece you know, of the, the software engineering puzzle, oftentimes not even the most complex one. 
And by forcing ourselves to write down what it is and clearly articulate what it is that we're trying to do, I, it's actually, it's amazing what that ends up doing because first I watch engineers start writing that, that spec and then all of a sudden you see the light bulbs of all the edge cases. Like all of a sudden they're like, oh man, what happens if that happens, if they do that? What, what if the device is in this state when that happens? And, and, and for some reason, when you're writing the code, your brain is in a different mode and you don't always actually think about the behavior. You think about the logic problems you're currently solving. And so, so writing things, and by the way, I, this is not a strong suit of mine. So, so uh, area of work for me, but, but, but writing things um, is something that you write, like doesn't just help with communication, but sometimes, you know, helps with design. Like I, I think there's something kind of very basic with, you know, taking, putting pen to paper and, and, and thinking through a problem kind of visually and, and thematically. The other thing you made me think of is I had one colleague at Oculus um, who had previous, prior to being an, an embedded software engineer at Oculus, he had been an architect at ARM. So he'd worked on the Cortex M4. He'd written part of the spec. He, he was the guy who had designed the SWD protocol. So really interesting guy, right? And he was the most anti-software embedded software engineer I've ever met. <laughs> uh, uh, he, he, you know, he, he, he rejected kind of any kind, any, any real kind of software engineering uh, 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 habit, but, but, he, but he came from that very kind of strict hardware uh, school of thought that you were talking mm -hmm. about. And so although his firmware, in my opinion, looks very weird and very different from anything I would write, and he didn't have any kind of automated tests, you know, barely used version control. His firmware was so fastidiously documented that it, it, it ended up creating a, a lot of value. He had, it wasn't Markdown because he was old school. He had these tech files, right, mm. uh, that he would compile into these beautifully typeset uh, PDFs uh, that, that he distributed with tables and, and all that. And they were dozens of pages for a fairly simple system. Um, and what I, what I, what strikes me the most about that is how many teams kept copies of his spec. Teams that were far beyond the firmware team. Think about like support team members, right? Who were just, you know, non-technical, talking to customers directly, thinking about uh, product managers who were trying to, because, because that firmware spec turned out to be the best document that described what the product did. And it was written by the engineer who was documenting his work. And, and that, you know, I don't think about that as much as I should. I think there's, there was a lot of lessons in there. Um, and, and in many ways, uh, the way he worked was very different from mine, but definitely very effective. Yeah, and it's one of those things you mentioned, he used tech instead of Markdown, but that's usually one of the things that I, I work on with my team is it always frustrates me when I see people try and throw, oh, if we just use this this approach or this strategy, or you know, if we switch to Agile, or if we use this tool for requirements capture, if we use this tool for version control. And the answer is like, nothing that I tend to advise as a consultant is stuck to one tool. Like usually what I say is I have tools that I prefer, but if your team is already familiar with a certain version control tool or a certain documentation tool, you can use a Confluence wiki, you can use a text document, you can use Microsoft Word, although that's not the best for version control, but uh, you know, whatever your team is comfortable with using today, 
you can do this because the first there's certainly like once you start getting into the more advanced things like traceability and you know uh, making sure that all of your requirements have been implemented and tested and shipped in a certain way certainly there are tools that will help you with that more than markdown but for that first tier of like zero to one improvement whatever you're familiar with as long as everyone uses it and everyone knows where to look and everyone has kind of a common understanding that will take you a hundred times further than using some really expensive tool that a consultant sold you. So very rarely, like I have tools that if someone says, Hey, we need an X, which one should we use? I have ones that I've used in the past and I'll recommend, but I don't really mandate that any of my clients use one specific suite of tools or approach or things like that. And there's so much good stuff out there in open source today that especially if you're not in a safety critical industry where you require some kind of, you know, conformance for your tool and things like that. There's so many excellent tools out there in open source that can help you with things like uh, version control or requirements tracking, or just a couple scripts that you can throw together in a couple hours. Like you said, of someone who just said, okay, I made the tests work. You know, maybe they took an off the shelf unit test framework, something like CMACA for C or CPP test, or, you know, any of these kind of tools and, and they put them in practice and just documented how to use them. And the team started using them because that's what a lot of I find is, is that there will be someone on the team who knows some stuff, but there's no consensus. And there's always a back and forth of what tool should we use? And the answer is, it doesn't really matter what tool you use. Use something, use it consistently. And if you decide six weeks from now to change the tool, cool, just decide it as a team and make that change. And that's why I, I tend to default to Nowadays, especially with things like GitHub and things like that, even firmware engineers are usually fairly confident in the concept of pull requests or keeping things in version control. So that's usually kind of the, the lingua franca that I start with. Uh, not every team has comfortability in that, but I find, especially in 2020 or 2021, more and more teams, even electrical engineers and things like that, have exposure to GitHub. And even if they're just using the web client, they're still fairly comfortable with using that model. So one of the things that I tend to do is I go, as a team, let's have that docs folder and let's put requirements there and let's put like agreements with each other on how we're going to work. And usually in, in safety critical, I would call this a software development plan or a software test plan. Um, but you usually just say anytime you've had to have a discussion about something or you've had an argument about something, make a decision, write it down in the document, make a commit, and you can always change it, but you need to, to change it. You need to do a pull request and you need to have someone review it. If it's everyone on your team, make a decision that's like, before we change how we do stuff, that requires everyone to sign off. And this doesn't have to be a heavy process. That can be someone opens a pull request and everyone on the team needs to hit approve on GitHub before we change it. And that's all the process we need to change. Oh, we've, we've switched from GCC to Clang, or we've switched from C to C++, or we've switched from you know whatever tool to whatever tool that's all you need like there, there doesn't have to be a heavy process there but just write down what you're going to do and never do something different without writing it down and this is one of those like incremental approaches to like incrementally bettering because i find most teams once you show them that and get the first like four or five things in that text document the next time they have an argument instead of arguing back and forth and having like two ways to do it or whatever they just sit down two or three of the people who oppose each other will will talk it out They'll write it down and they go, okay, I'm fine with this. They ping it out on Slack or whatever. And they say, hey, is everyone cool with this? Everyone says, cool. And then they commit it. And then like, there was no argument. There was no whatever. You don't even have to get management involved a lot of the time if it's uh -huh. not something that's outside of their purview. And it just gives teams the tools to work together. And a lot of it just comes down to that just enough paper of 
we, as engineers, we're going to write down what we do and we're still learning and we're still finding out what best practices really means for us and our organization. Cause there's, especially in software development, there's very few one size fit all recommendations I can give. So a lot of it just comes down to what you and your team feel is the best approach. Um, and sometimes as a consultant, I can help with guiding that, but it usually is finding out what the team needs and and talking with them. And a lot of times they already know, or someone on the team already knows, and they just need to kind of distribute that knowledge. And I find writing that down is the most effective way of doing that. There's, there's nothing more tragic than people who want to adopt best practices, but get stuck choosing just the perfect tool and like, you know, and, and, and three weeks later have lost all their momentum. I like 100% agree. If you're not sure which tool to use, just pick one at random, start using it, and you can change it. And, uh, and the most important thing is to just start going through the motions uh, and start chain, you know, putting your, applying your mind to requirements capture or test writing or whatever else it is that you're trying to, to adopt. Completely agree. Yeah, I find the number one thing that I recommend, or the the one, well, I don't know, I keep saying the one, but one thing that I find is the make or break for reliability in the systems that we're building is, is consistency of the development team. And like I said, it doesn't matter what they do, but being consistent about what they do helps keep the project smooth, helps from introducing defects and things like that. So people say, oh, what's the best for this or what's the best for this? And, and most of the time I say, well, what are you doing right now? It's one of those things like rather than inventing new laws, let's just enforce the laws we already have sort of approach. And whatever your team is already doing informally, let's just not set it in stone, but at least let's write it on the chalkboard and we can change the chalkboard at any time. But if you're ever, if you've ever written anything on the chalkboard and someone does something different, you just point at it and you go, that's the rule right now. And if you feel so strongly that we should be doing something different, cool propose a change to the chalkboard and we can all talk about it and we either will do it or we won't do it. And that's how you sort of get this shared understanding and shared culture and shared skill set between your team because everyone's doing the same thing in the same way and it, it really shakes out. I really picked this up. I want to say one of the, I mean, it's something that I'm used to from the safety critical industry just because you have to do that. But even in open source, I've seen like the Rust project has this uh, process called RFCs, which is very similar to like IETFs, RFCs. Basically it says, if you want to change something, you need to write down a bare minimum of what you want to change, how you want to change it, why this is a good idea, and why this could be a bad idea. And it's it's not a hugely red tape sort of project. It, it literally is like a markdown template that you copy and paste, and there's like five questions, and you really only have to write a couple sentences for this. And I've introduced this as a couple companies that I've worked at is you say like, we can change anything at any time, but you need to have a justification. You need to tell us what the actual extent of this change is. And you as an engineer need to really consider the pluses and minuses of this. And I find that going through those motions tends to get people suggesting really positive things. And it's not even just a, a you know, my idea is better than the other person. It's really thinking through how will this impact what we're doing? And like I said, especially in the early days when, when the teams are really setting down these first principles, I find that even that just can be, you know, write one sentence for each of those five things. And it might take you five minutes to set that up and really not a lot. And usually most people won't have an objection because they go, oh, that looks good. But then as your team starts becoming more mature and you start becoming, uh, you, you have kind of more experience and things like that, it might get a little bit more complex, but that's just because you you have this 
shared consciousness. And anytime you share, change the shared consciousness of people, it requires more effort, the more, you know, momentum you have. But uh, like you said, don't get caught in that analysis paralysis. Use the wrong tool for two weeks, because if no other reason, after two weeks, you will know why that is the wrong tool and you'll know what other tool to choose because then you'll understand the terminology and you'll understand people on the internet saying, don't use that tool if you don't enjoy this. Instead, use this tool. And in even just two weeks of using the wrong tool can sometimes be the most informative thing that you can do for picking the right tool. So I really like even more than trying to evaluate five tools, because I see engineers do this a ton where, where someone has to pick the tool and they go out and they spend one day on five different real-time operating systems. And after one day of using each of these real-time operating systems, they try and make a chart that has pluses and minuses for their manager. And that's a super shallow understanding of the, of the problem because you, you can't evaluate something like a real-time operating system on one day of hello world usage or just Googling the wiki to, to see what people are saying about this project. And what I find is, is just try not to get super baked into whatever tool you're using and focus more on like the why you're trying to do these things. Like, why are you using a real-time operating system? Why are you using a requirements capture tool and things like that? And don't get super baked into these ecosystems until you have the understanding of why one ecosystem might be better than the other. I, like I said, I'd, I'd rather have a team use the wrong operating system for a month and then switch gears a month in because I think that they're going to have a more solid understanding of even that second system than if they tried to just comprehend five systems with one or two days of effort. Yeah, I've, re I've really regretted making a quick decision on something like this. Like you talk about real-time operating systems, you know, I've, of course I've used many of them, but I remember distinctly joining a team where they used uh, RTX, which is the, the underlying RTOS that's in embed, ARM embed. And, and I, I was previously used to free RTOS and liked it a lot, but you know what? You know, I chose to continue using RTX for the next projects we started, and it was fine. Like more often than not, it's not worth your energy to kind of get in, you know, uh, to 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 kind of exhaustively figure out the difference between two things. If they meet your requirements, you're good to go. Just keep moving. <laughs> yeah, it's like coding styles, like tabs versus spaces or indents and things like that. I don't care what style you use, as long as you That's use it consistently. Point. I'm I'm a four spaces, you know, indents on the the if line kind of person. But if I join a team and they're consistently using some kind of style, doesn't matter. Consistency is the most valuable thing about style checking, just because it allows you to see where things are weird. And that's one of those things that, like, yeah, I, I strongly believe in engineering. Consistency is like one of the most valuable aspects to your team to have. You know, qualities of your team. If your team is consistent, it's going to be more predictable. It's going to be more it's going to be easier to understand and things like that. And yeah, don't get, don't get caught up, especially if it's something that you don't have a ton of experience in because you know, that's a, a super, super huge deal. When it comes to coding style, um, one thing that I, when I worked at Sun Microsystems, the coding style was not in a wiki because it was considered like settled law. Like it was, it, it was at the point where when you have thousands of engineers and they all have opinions about the coding style at some point, you know, your, your document has to be immutable. <laughs> um, and, and that's something that I learned is, is you're talking about the laws and them being in the GitHub. And I think that's 99% of the time, that's the exact right approach. But, but at some scale and for some things, 
the PDF is amazing. And people will hate that it's not editable and they can't submit changes. But sometimes that's a feature, not a bug. Just that just reminded me of that. Like the the C coding style at Sun, you got as a PDF. And that was that. And, and people might argue, oh, this might be better, that might be better. No, consistency with thousands of engineers is the most valuable thing there. Taught me yeah. a lot. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There's certain things that, like I said, kind of gain more inertia. Like when you're first introducing something where no one has an opinion, yeah, you can change it whenever you need, um, as long as you can get consensus of the team. But yeah, like you said, when there's a certain amount of scale and inertia behind it, there are some things that you just, you know, that raises the bar of, okay, what is the impact of changing this is one of those things that you think about. And if it's a coding standard used by thousands of engineers, yeah, the impact of changing that is is pretty huge. So, you know, m maybe pick your battles on that one. But yeah, there's there's so many things that is, yeah, I are trivial to change. And usually people don't have strong opinions about and can really, you know, quickly improve the, the life of the team that you're working on. I also feel like it, it it's really egalitarian because it allows anyone to propose changes. Because if you're a new intern on the team, and this is one of those things that I, I've seen some teams handle really well and some teams not handle really well is whenever you get someone who comes to your company, whether it's a new intern, whether it's a new hire, whether it's someone who's rotating in from another team, you get a chance to share knowledge. And when there's one place for these new team members to go and look and understand how your team works, it onboards them way faster. Like it's, it's way easier to be able to teach your intern or new hire or rotation person how your team works when you can point them at a document and say, spend like an hour reading that. And if you have any questions, we can talk about it. And then, you know, in a week, if they have a question, you go, oh, that's in the document. Or if they ask you questions as a team member, it's really important for you to go, they just asked me that question, which means that should probably be in that document. Because if it's unclear, that means you have sort of this just informal tribal knowledge. And anytime someone asks you a question, you go, I will give you the answer, but it's your job to go submit a PR to add it to the, the document. And when it's possible for anyone to make changes like that, especially if you have someone who says, hey, you know, we're not doing testing. We're not doing unit testing. Let me write up how I do unit testing, show you how I would do it. And I'll open up a PR to the docs that say, okay, this is how we do unit testing and when we unit test and things like that. And it gives this ability for continuous improvement of the teams that you work on because there's no like, oh, I have to go convince five stodgy engineers of how to do it. It becomes like a really defined path where the worst teams that I work with, you have this like unwritten power play where you have to like go convince this one arcane engineer who's very stuck in their ways. And like the reason that no one's changed anything in five years is because that person never says yes to anything. And as a manager, this is a really big like red flag danger sign. But when you have like a path for this, if someone goes through the process and says, hey, I want to do this and no one has any objections and it still gets pushed back, that's sort of a sign that says, we really shouldn't have pushback on this. This is something that brings value and we can have those kind of things. So if nothing else, like it, it also kind of reflects the state and maturity of the actual engineering team that you're working on. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I know we're getting close to the end of the hour and I know you have another meeting in about five minutes. So I really, really want to uh, thank you for coming and chatting with me. As always, it's, it's excellent to talk to you and I hope I get to talk to you again much sooner than the last time we talked on, on, video chat or the phone. But before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to plug? Anything you definitely want people to go see, follow you on Twitter, project that you're working on, product that you're about to launch? Yeah, you know, so so 
I've been working on Memfold day and night for the past two years. So of course, uh, I'd, I'd love for people to check that out. Uh, it's it's memfold.com, M-E-M-F-A-U-L-T. Uh, and if you're not or already reading the Interrupt blog, we write a lot about embedded software engineering there. I'm really proud of it. We spent a good bit of time doing that. This is not a trivial effort for our company. And so uh, uh, we love it when people comment on, on, on what we write, maybe submit things themselves that they want to publish. I think, James, you've written one or two pieces for us, which has been amazing. Yeah. And, and so I think those are the two things that plug. Um, and we've been, it's been an amazing journey. And, and we love it when engineers come back to us with feedback, ideas, and, and, uh, and stories of their own. Excellent. Well, amazing to talk to you and looking forward to talk to you soon. Have a great rest of the day. Have a good day, James, or a good evening. And uh, the pleasure is mine. I'll, I'd be happy to come back anytime. Excellent. Bye -bye. Talk to you soon.